0: hello everyone what is up welcome back to another episode of killer instinct you guys thank you so much for tuning in with me if you are new here hi my name is savannah and i am your host of killer instinct before we get started make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button that way you never miss an episode we post weekly on the podcast every wednesday and every thursday on the youtube channel as well and you are not going to want to miss it now, before we jump into today's case, I do want to take a moment and thank you guys so much for all of the support on the merch drop that we had last week. If you were unfamiliar, Killer Instinct launched its first ever line of merch last week, and I could not be more excited for how excited you guys were about it and we could like mutually share that excitement it was such an amazing launch and if you haven't had the chance to go pick up your pieces yet don't worry because they're not going anywhere but you can always find them either on the killer instinct instagram or you can find them on the youtube video or in the description of the podcast I do wanna say we just added a insanely gorgeous purple color for the hoodies and it looks so good and I can't wait for you guys to get your hands on it. So make sure you go check those out if you have not already. So now let's talk about today's case, and I have been wanting to talk to you guys about this case for the past two-ish or so weeks. I have been itching to hear what you guys have to say about this case and what your thoughts on this case are. Today, as you can tell by the title of the episode, today we are talking about the horrific murder of Jessica Chambers. Jessica was burned alive in early December of 2014. Now, I became familiar with this case because there's actually a docu-series on Hulu about it, and the docu-series in total is about six to seven hours if you watch it front to back, and I have watched it front to back twice. So at this point, I feel like I'm very familiar with the case, and I just cannot wait to hear what you guys have to say about it. This case touches on a lot of different topics like gang violence and drugs and race and all of these different things and I just, I go back and forth with it a little bit, but I'm going to stop talking and we're going to get right on into it so you guys can tell me what you think. Jessica Chambers was born on February 2nd, 1995 to her parents, Lisa and Ben Chambers. She was born in a small town called Cortland, Mississippi and grew up there with her four brothers and three sisters. Now Ben and Lisa ended up getting a divorce when Jessica was three years old. And once that divorce was finalized, Jessica continued to live with her mother. However, like I said, Cortland is a very small community and her father lived on the same exact street as Lisa did. So she was never too far away from her dad. Shortly after the divorce, Ben ended up remarrying another woman named Denise, and the two of them had a daughter named Annabelle, who was only four years old when Jessica had died. So now let's talk a little bit about Cortland, Mississippi, so you understand the type of town that we are talking about today. Now, Cortland, like I said, is a very very small town. It's located in Panola County and has a population of about 500 people. It very much is one of those towns where everyone knows everyone. And being in small town Mississippi, it definitely runs off of more old school conservative values. And along with those old school conservative values, this town also experiences a lot of Racism. It experienced it back then, and it still to this day is happening. In 2014, when this case takes place, the town itself was pretty segregated. White and black people still went to different churches. And what I found quite interesting was that in this documentary that I watched, you had a lot of the white people saying that segregation wasn't really as prominent anymore and it wasn't a thing anymore and it didn't exist as much. However, on the contrary, you had the African-American community that lived in Cortland saying the complete opposite, that racism was still very much a prominent thing that they had to deal with every single day. Now, despite the values of Cortland and the racism that took place there, Jessica was known to have strayed away from what her community had taught her. And she was known to be friends with everybody. She had friends from all different walks of life and all different sides of town, despite what other people thought about her. Jessica Chambers grew up being the life of the party. It was said that she could bring any room of people together. In high school, Jessica was a cheerleader at the South Panola High School, and she also played softball. She was a flyer of the group for cheerleading, and she absolutely loved it. Growing up, she had dreams of being an author, then a teacher. However, at the time of her death, her biggest dream was to become a nurse. Now with Cortland being the small town like it is, like I said, everyone knows everyone, and everyone knew and loved Jessica, however, Cortland itself could definitely be considered a dangerous town. There was a lot of gang violence in Cortland and a lot of drug use, and the three prominent drugs running through Cortland at the time were weed, cocaine, and methamphetamines. Now, at the time that this happened, there were known to be at least three prominent gangs in Panola County and in Cortland. And Jessica was known to be very good friends with a lot of these members. She was also known to have dated a lot of the members of these gangs as well. And most of her ex-boyfriends were constantly in and out of prison. So while Jessica was never a part of a gang herself, meaning she was never a member, she definitely was still involved in that crowd, whether it was just friends of hers or ex-boyfriends of hers. And through that community, Jessica started being friends with a lot of drug users and a lot of drug dealers. And because she was surrounded by that all the time, she began to do the same. Now, there are very, again, differing opinions on Jessica when it comes to her drug use and how much she was doing and what she wasn't doing and if she was selling and if she wasn't selling. There were some people that said that she just smoked weed. There were some people that said that she smoked and sold it. There were some people that said that she sold cocaine. It just, it varied depending on the person that you talked to. Now, Jessica did have an arrest record. She was arrested for simple assault. So it was safe to say that Jessica was definitely getting herself involved in situations that weren't good for her. And a lot of people who knew Jessica, her friends and her family, they became very worried about her because they started to see that she could potentially be going down a very bad path in life. And this bad path really started in 2012. And the trigger of this bad path was, unfortunately, Jessica's older brother ended up dying in a car accident when he was 27 years old in 2012. Now, Jessica and her older brother were very, very close. They had a very good relationship. And Jessica was completely gutted by the passing of her brother. And it was around that time where she started getting more involved in the drug use and that lifestyle. Now like I said, this was very hard for Jessica's family to watch because being from Cortland, they are very much a Christian family that tried their best to instill those values in Jessica. But Jessica was a firecracker. She definitely did not like being told what to do or who she couldn't who she couldn't hang out with. She didn't like judgments, she didn't like people judging her for her actions or who she hung out with. But through some conversations with her family and with her friends, Jessica started to realize the path that she was headed down if she continued the lifestyle that she was living. So just a couple months before her murder, actually, Jessica really did try to turn her life around. Jessica and her family collectively decided that it would be best if Jessica went to a rehabilitation center, and so they picked one for her. And so they all decided on a place called Leah's House. Now, Leah's House is an inpatient program located in Oakland, Mississippi. On their website, they claim to provide women with a quote-unquote biblical foundation to solve their problems. They claim to help women over the age of 18 who have dealt with addiction or behavioral problems or self-harm or depression or being incarcerated, and help guide them on a path to a better life. And it very much is a religious center. The front page of the website says, quote unquote, God's grace healing broken lives. Now, regardless of however you personally feel about this, Jessica and her family decided that this was the best place for her and the best place for her to go. And so she went there and stayed for a little over 30 days at the end of summer in 2014. Now, when Jessica left Leah's house and went back home to Cortland, it was said that she did a complete 180 with her life. Her family said that her personality had changed for the better. She started acting like a young woman and she really started getting on the straight and narrow path that her family wanted for her. And so they could not have been any more proud. And equally, Jessica was also very proud of herself. She had gotten a job at a clothing store, and some of the last conversations that her family remembers having with her are ones where she would say, like, I'm doing better, aren't I? Or I'm getting on the right path. And so it seemed to her family that she was really now in this place in her life where she could be excited about her future so with jessica having changed her life around and now on this new and better path it leads to the question of what could have possibly happened that led to jessica being burned alive now on december 6th at a little after 8 pm the fire department got a phone call that there had been a car lit on fire on heron road Jessica's car was found on a small embankment with the front of the car facing a fence. Now to give you a visual of what this looked like if you're not watching me on YouTube and can't physically see it, the car was on top of this embankment and on the other side of this fence it was a metal fence. On the other side of it was a very wooded area. Now at 8 12 p.m the fire department responded to the call and arrived on the scene and when they arrived at first, they only saw the car. Now, there was no sign of anyone inside of the car. However, shortly after, these two first responders saw a figure walking out of the woods from what they said was in a zombie-like trance. Now, when these first responders saw Jessica, at first they didn't know it was her. She was completely unrecognizable. They said that her hair was completely fried out. It looked like she had stuck her finger in a light socket. Jessica had black char all over her face and her body and severe third-degree burns that covered 95% of her. The inside of her mouth was charred black and her skin was peeling off so badly that the first responders could not even put an IV into her. Now for these first responders, this was not something that they have ever seen before. As you can imagine, this is a smaller community. They don't get a lot of calls like this, but even just on a general scale, for someone to have been burned as badly as Jessica was is not something you see every day. So you can imagine the complete horror that they felt just looking at Jessica. Now, shortly after the two first responders arrived on the scene, you had more EMTs and medical personnel arrive as well, who were all trying to attend to Jessica. Now again, Jessica was unrecognizable at this point, so these first responders had no idea who this was, so they had to ask her. They asked if she was able to identify herself, and the first responder was able to hear her say, Jessica Chambers." Because of the burns in her mouth and the char and all of that, she wasn't able to enunciate correctly. However, all of these first responders knew who Jessica Chambers was. Ben Chambers, Jessica's father, was actually the mechanic for the sheriff's department. So they were very familiar with Jessica. Now when Jessica was found, she was only wearing her bra and her underwear, and at this point you had about eight first responders who were on the scene, and all eight of them had asked Jessica at different points before she went to the hospital, who did this to her? Who was responsible for this? And all of those eight first responders claimed that Jessica had said the name, Eric. You had eight different first responders who said, Eric did this to me. Eric set me on fire. Now, the police and other first responders said that Jessica had said this multiple times. However, because of her problems with enunciating, they weren't entirely sure if she said Eric or if she was trying to say Derek. Now, regardless if it was Eric or Derek, they knew that it was something to that extent, or at least that is what it sounded like to them. Now, due to the extent of Jessica's injuries, she had to be airlifted to a hospital that could accommodate her, and when she got there, it was confirmed that Jessica had deep third-degree burns on over 93% of her body, and sadly, once she arrived, the doctors quickly realized that there was not anything that they could do for her, and that Jessica was going to succumb to these injuries. Jessica passed away, surrounded by her family, the following day on December 7th. Her official cause of death was soot and smoke inhalation, as well as thermal injuries. Now, a toxicology report was done, and it showed that she did have traces of marijuana in her system, and it also showed that there were no signs of sexual activity that night. Now, a rape kit was not done on Jessica which a lot of people believe was a very big mistake in this case however what we do know based on the autopsy is that there was no sign of any sexual activity from the night that she died now this case shook Cortland to its core as you can imagine and really shook the entire country So how did we get here? How did this happen? What happened leading up to this? How did this all unfold is probably what you were thinking right now because that is what I was thinking when I learned about all of this. So I think the best thing to do right now is to give you the most precise timeline as possible for what the entire day of December 6th looked like for Jessica. So, December 6th was a Saturday, and this started out like any normal day. Jessica woke up at around 9 a.m. that day at her mother Lisa's house, and not too long after that, at around 10 a.m., her phone records showed that she called one of her friends, a guy named Quentin Tellis. Quentin Tellis was 28 years old at the time, and him and Jessica had really not known each other that long. They knew each other approximately two weeks. They met two weeks prior to this through mutual friends. They exchanged numbers, and they started talking shortly after that. Now, in terms of what their relationship, the short- relationship that they had looked like it definitely seemed like a friends with benefits type of relationship quentin and jessica had been intimate before on one occasion throughout their two weeks and just looking at the nature of their texting it is very flirty it's very sexual so it is it's definitely a you know friends with benefits type of deal that we have going on here so Jessica called Quinton at around 10 a.m. on the 6th, and this call lasted for a little over a minute. Now after this call, Jessica drove over to the local convenience store gas station, and this is called M&M. Now Jessica is seen that morning on the security cameras at M&M, and Quentin actually lived very, very close to M&M. He actually lived so close that the security cameras at M&M were able to see the entrance to his driveway. At around 10.15 AM, Jessica is seen entering and then leaving Quinton's driveway after she had picked him up. And the two then just drove on the back roads of Cortland. And then they went to pick up another one of their friends named Keisha Myers at around 10.33 AM. So now at this point you have Jessica Quentin and Keisha driving around in the car on the back roads of Cortland and if you've ever lived in a very very small town you know that driving the back roads and just driving the roads in general is actually kind of an activity that people do because there isn't too much to do so you'll go with your friends and you'll drive around and that is exactly what was happening on this morning. So Keisha gets picked up at around 10.33 and then for the next 20 minutes they are all just driving around before they ended up dropping Quentin back off at M&M and then Jessica dropped Keisha off at home as well and then she herself made her way back to her house. Now, based on cell phone records, we know that Jessica got another text from Quentin around 3 p.m. that afternoon. And this time, Quentin was basically proposing the idea of him and Jessica hooking up again. like I said the two of them had this very much friends with benefits relationship and for the past four days leading up to the 6th of December Quentin had asked Jessica for sex in those four days leading up and continuously Jessica denied him she said no she didn't want to and this time was no different. Jessica told Quentin that her mom was home, and her sister was home, and it just, it wasn't going to happen. And then after sending the text, Jessica got on her big comfy chair in her living room, curled up, and took a nap, and then woke up at around 4.45pm. And it was around that time where she got either a phone call or a text from quentin and this time jessica basically agreed to hang out with him with the caveat that he needed to buy her food And I think it's important to state this, in the exchange between Quentin and Jessica, she was only going so she could get food with Quentin. She wasn't going for food in exchange for sex. She just said that, I'm gonna go get food, you can come with me if you wanna pay. And Quentin agreed to this. And while these plans were in the process of being made, Jessica called her friend Keisha, the same friend that had been with her earlier that morning, twice. However, Keisha's phone ran out of minutes, so she was not able to answer the call. However, we can presume that Jessica was going to either invite Keisha along for the ride, so maybe she didn't have to be alone with Quentin, or maybe she just wanted Keisha to come. Who knows? Now, at 4.59 p.m., there was a 33-second phone call between Jessica and Quentin. Now, between 5.08 p.m. and 5.11 p.m., Quentin is seen on the security camera footage at M&M, and he was seen wearing a bright red shirt. Now at 5.12pm, Quentin then left M&M and walked back to his house, and then at 5.24pm, so just a little over 10 minutes after Quentin left, Jessica is seen pulling up into the M&M store. When Jessica got to M&M, she parked her car at the gas pump, she walks inside, she makes a purchase, then she got back in her car and began driving south. Now, at 5.29, Jessica made a call to Quentin that went unanswered. However, shortly after, at 5.34 p.m., Quentin called Jessica back, basically letting her know that he was ready to be picked up for the two of them to go get food. So after she got that phone call, Jessica then went to Quentin's house, and the two of them drove to Batesville at around 6.15 p.m., and they went to a Taco Bell together. Now, Batesville is not far from Cortland. It's only about a 7 to 10 minute drive. Now, I know that all of these timestamps can get confusing. However, just... Bear with me here on this because I think it's really important to go through this step-by-step from what we know happened that day in order to put all of the pieces together. Now mostly everything from this point forward is all on the account of what Quentin said happened. So Quentin said that around 6.30, him and Jessica returned back to his house where they just hung out in her car for about 30 minutes in his driveway. Quentin said that the two of them did not have sex, but they did end up smoking some weed together and just listened to music and hung out. Quinton said the reason that they didn't go inside of his house was because his family was in there and because they wanted to smoke together. So the two of them smoked weed in the car and at 6.48 PM, Jessica made her last phone call ever to her mother, Lisa. Do you ever fantasize about who you'd be if you lived somewhere different? Maybe you'd surf if you lived by the beach. Or maybe if you lived in the city, you would live above a coffee shop and finally be able to write that novel you've always dreamed of. Or if you had a dishwasher, maybe you'd actually be able to start cooking and make a proper dinner at home. With over 1 million available units for rent on Apartments.com, the you abilities are endless. Apartments.com lets you narrow down exactly what you want and when you want it. And with their instant alert you'll never miss out on seeing what could be your new perfect place. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place to live, whether that's an apartment, a townhome, or even a house, and they can help you find exactly what it is that you're looking for. Visit Apartments.com, the place to find a place. So the call lasted a little over a minute, and it was basically just a phone call checking in. And according to Lisa, there was nothing strange or concerning about this phone call whatsoever. However, Lisa did say that she could tell that Jessica wasn't alone because she was just talking a little quieter and there was no background noise, there was no radio, there was no anything. So she could tell that Jessica was with someone when she called. Now, according to Quentin, he said that he said goodbye to Jessica a little after 7 p.m. that night. Now, based on Jessica's cell phone records, it showed that her phone pinged from the crime scene, so where she would then be found, at 7.30 p.m. So that is very shortly after she left Quentin. At 7.42, Jessica's phone received a call from Quentin that went unanswered. And then she also received a text from him at 7:43 saying, quote, Bay, my friend is coming over tonight. I'ma call you tomorrow. Good night, sweet dreams. Now the next thing we know is that at 8.04 p.m., the fire department got a call and then arrived on the scene at 8.12. So this all happened very quickly when we look at the call that Jessica made to her mother and then Jessica presumably leaving Quinton and then her and her car being discovered shortly after. So that is what we know of the timeline of December 6th So now let's move on to this whole Eric and Derek thing, or let's touch on it a little. We'll talk about it a little bit more when we get to the trial, but let's just discuss it a little bit. So after the first responders had informed police that they thought that they heard Jessica say something along the lines of that Eric or Derek was responsible for this, they decided to go to, quite literally, every person in Cortland who was named either Eric or Derek and try to see if they could link them to this. And they said that they even went as far as looking at everyone in Panola County. So according to the police, they went through everyone. Now, there is a theory here, and this is in regards to Jessica's ex-boyfriend, who was a man named Derek Holmes. Now, Derek was 25 years old at the time and living in Cortland and is a registered sex offender. Now, it was said by Quinton that Derek was stalking Jessica. However, when police went to go speak to Derek Holmes, he had an alibi. He was at home rubbing his mother's feet and his mother backed him up on that alibi as well as his neighbors. And weirdly enough, Police just kind of believed him. Now, I'm not here to say that he's responsible or he's not, but police really didn't question the fact that he was at home rubbing his mother's feet. They backed this alibi up, actually, by saying that Derek's mother had a medical condition, and that is why Derek was rubbing her feet. So that alibi was very much believed by police quickly. And where you will probably not be surprised is the fact that police had their eye on Quentin Tellis, the man that was with Jessica, all day from the very beginning. They actually interviewed him a total of five times. The first two times they interviewed him were just in the days after the murder. His first interview was actually December 10th, and Jessica passed away on the 7th. And the last three interviews actually occurred nine months after the first two. So there was a very big gap in between these interviews. And before we move any further, I think it's very important for us to talk about who Quentin Tellis is. Now, like I said, Quentin Tellis was a 27-year-old man at the time who was born and raised in Cortland. He was born on October 6, 1988, and was raised by his single mother, Rebecca, and also has two sisters. Now, Quentin actually dropped out of school in the eighth grade, and from 2006 on, he spent most of his time in and out of prison. He has charges relating to fleeing a police officer, larceny, burglary, possession of marijuana, and a DUI. And like I mentioned earlier, Jessica and Quentin had not known each other very long. They only knew each other for about two weeks before the murder. Now Quentin himself was involved in gangs. He joined his first gang, I'm not sure if it was the only one he joined, but he joined that gang when he was in prison. And like I said, he was interviewed five times. Now here's where things get tricky, because in his first interview, Quentin completely denied being with Jessica at all on the night of the 6th. Quentin claimed that he had this alibi, that he was with a friend of his. However, police quickly learned that this friend was actually out of town that night, so that alibi didn't hold up. And over the course of his interviews, Quinton's story continued to change. He went from saying that he never saw her at all that night, to then saying that he did see her, but only briefly to give her money, and then he left. However, it wasn't until his interview on January 27th of 2016 that he did admit to being with her and then he gave the timeline that I mentioned to you earlier. Now, Quentin was actually given a polygraph test in regards to his involvement in Jessica's death or his possible involvement in Jessica's death and he actually passed the polygraph. Now, as we know, polygraphs are not admissible in court So they're not very here nor there when it comes to proving someone's innocence or guilt. However, it is something to keep in mind. Now, the reason that authorities had gone back and interviewed Quentin after their two initial interviews is because they went back and looked at Jessica and quentin's cell phone records now when they went back and looked at these cell phone records what they claimed is that quentin and jessica's phone had actually pinged at the exact same location which was the crime scene at the presumed time of the crime so basically what police are seeing is that quentin's phone is at heron road jessica's phone is at heron road all in the 30 minutes leading up to first responders arriving which is obviously very questionable very concerning and would lead you to believe that if quentin was at the scene of the crime at the time of the crime he may have something to do with it now along with that the police also claimed that they had found quentin's dna on jessica's car keys Now, Quentin had used Jessica's car on one prior occasion. He drove it to a liquor store one night, so that could be an explanation as to why his DNA was on the keys. However, police really took this and said that his DNA is on the keys, he had to have driven the car that night, and he had to have driven it to the crime scene and then lit the car on fire. What the police believed and what the prosecution then believed their whole theory is that based off of the information that they had, they believed that Quentin either tried to make a move on Jessica or made sexual advances towards her to which she denied. They then believe that Quentin got angry and allegedly strangled Jessica. And Quentin at that point believed allegedly that Jessica was dead. Police then believe that at around 7.30, Quinton drove Jessica's car to the crime scene, which would give them a reason as to why his DNA was on the car keys, and then walked to his sister's house, which was about a 20 minute walk. So that would land him there at around 7.50. They then believe that at 7.50, he drove his sister's car back to his own house, picked up a five gallon gas tank that he kept in his shed, drove it back to the crime scene, doused the car in gasoline, and then lit it on fire, believing that Jessica was already dead and not knowing that she was still alive. So that is the detective's timeline of what they believe happened. And keep this all in mind because this is going to come up again when we get to the trial. I know there's a lot going on here, but this is this is really important. So when detectives looked at the phone records, they decided that they needed to talk to Quentin again because obviously this is very, very important. And they tried to get in touch with him in Cortland and they very quickly learned that Quentin was actually not in Cortland anymore. Instead, he was actually incarcerated in Monroe, Louisiana, in connection to another woman's murder. In August of 2015, Quentin was arrested for the murder of a woman named Meng Chen Cho, whose friends called her Mandy. Now, Mandy's body was actually discovered in her apartment with puncture wounds to her neck and chest. Now, At the time of her murder, Quentin was actually living in Monroe, Louisiana, not too far from her apartment. And two weeks prior to Mandy's death, Quentin was actually at her apartment complex asking one of Mandy's neighbors some weird questions about Mandy. He asked where she was and when she was going to be back, and just questions about her schedule that set off red flags to this neighbor. And then, two weeks later, Mandy was found dead in her apartment. Now, there was no physical evidence that pointed to Quentin, no DNA in the apartment that matched him at all. However, when they looked at phone records again, they saw that Quentin's phone was only 200 feet away from Mandy's apartment the night of the murder. And then, shortly after the murder, on August 15th of 2015, Quentin was seen on a surveillance footage of a bank trying to use Mandy's credit card to get cash. So even though they couldn't charge him for the murder because there wasn't enough evidence to prove that he did it, they did charge Quentin for unauthorized use of a debit card and they actually sentenced him to 10 years in prison for that. So now you have two different murders that Quentin is potentially connected to, or at least connected to in some way with the debit card and the fact that Quentin was with Jessica all day. So is it because Quentin was actually involved in both of these murders or is it because of bad luck? Now, when it comes to Quentin and Jessica, when police made the connection with the phone pings, the fact that Jessica and Quentin's phone showed that they were at the same place at the same time, they drove to Louisiana and had their third interview with Quentin on November 2nd of 2015. Now, despite passing the polygraph and maintaining his innocence, since day one, Quentin was arrested and charged with Jessica's murder. He was arraigned on July 15th of 2016, where he pled not to guilty and his trial was set for october 10th 2017. now before we dive into the trial i do want to take a moment and thank our sponsors for today's video so let's talk about the trial Quinton was represented by Darla Palmer and Alton Peterson. For the prosecution side, the district attorney was John Champion and Jay Hale, and the jury consisted of seven men, five women, seven who were black, and five who were white. Now, for the first trial, the prosecution decided to bring in the man that found Jessica's car keys, and that man is named Jerry King. Jerry King was taking his daughter for a walk on December 8th and found Jessica's car keys about a quarter mile from where her car was. When Jerry found the keys, he said that he didn't think anything of it, and he just picked them up and gave them to his daughter for her to play with. Jerry said it wasn't until their walk was over and they got home that he saw a keychain from Ben Chambers Auto Repair, who is Jessica's father, and that is when he put two and two together that these had to be Jessica's car keys. Now, when police got to his house, Jerry and the authorities walked back to the spot where Jerry said he found the keys, and police decided to drop the keys in that spot and then take pictures of the keys in that spot for crime scene pictures. Now this was a big point of contention in this case because the defense argued that this could potentially be a way to fabricate evidence because police were essentially just taking Jerry's word for where he found the keys. It was even magnified when it came to the light that Jerry King might not be the most trusting or reputable person because he himself has a rap sheet that consists of larceny and indecent exposure. Exposure. so it raised a lot of eyebrows. Now in the trial, it was also brought to the jury's attention that there was a strange and suspicious man reported at the crime scene now two first responders reported seeing this man and they described him as a middle-aged black man and first responders said that they approached this guy and they basically told him that he couldn't be there and he couldn't be watching what was going on because that's what this man was doing he wasn't talking he wasn't saying anything he was just standing there watching. Now, the first responder who testified this said that the man didn't say anything back to him when he was told to leave, but the look that he gave this first responder, quote-unquote, sent a chill through my body. Now the man walked off after he was told to leave and while he was walking away he actually took his shirt off. He was wearing a blue shirt and a white undershirt so he took the blue shirt off and then was just walking away in the white shirt. Now obviously this was a big question mark because the prosecution never explained who this man was if police followed up with him why he was there to begin with there were so many questions regarding this man and prosecution never explained that and the defense obviously used it to their advantage because they were able to say there was a strange man a strange suspicious man that these first responders reported And by the way they used the terms strange and suspicious it's their words as to what they said and how they described this man and the defense was able to say why isn't this man here who was this man why don't we know who he is so they were definitely able to use that to their advantage now again the whole eric and derek thing this was a big point of contention Now, during the first trial, the prosecution brought up a medical director who is also a burn specialist. Now, this specialist said that based off of the injuries that Jessica endured, she would not have been able to properly enunciate anything. So regardless of what these eight first responders think they heard, you have to take it with the biggest grain of salt because she would not have been able to speak properly. But despite that, you then had the eight first responders testifying that she clearly said Eric. They had no doubt in their mind. Now, something that the defense also argued was that they didn't believe that the police did a thorough enough investigation of the crime scene. Jessica's car was moved from the crime scene to an impound lot just one hour after the fire. An investigator said that they did not look beyond the fence into the wooded area where Jessica came out of for any potential evidence. Now, this is a really huge thing if you think about it, because that's a whole other area that could potentially have information or evidence and just no one looked over there. However, the investigators defended themselves by saying that they wanted to move the car to a safe, protected, secured spot. That way they could do a safe and secured investigation. And this was also something that Jessica's family was very upset about. They felt like there could have been a lot of evidence that was just overlooked because police didn't look at the area that Jessica came out of. Now let's talk about the DNA on the car keys because prosecution started their opening statement by saying that Quinton's DNA was 100% on the car keys. But the jury quickly learned that that wasn't necessarily true. There was a DNA analyst expert who took the stand and she stated that there were four males DNA on the car keys. Now the testing that was done on these keys was known to not be reliable. For example, Jerry King, the man who found the keys, who picked the keys up and gave the keys to his daughter, his DNA came back as inconclusive on those keys when we know for a fact that his DNA should be on there. But the DNA expert said that with the type of testing that they did, they weren't able to include nor were they able to exclude Quentin's DNA, which is not what the prosecution said. The prosecution was going on and on and on about how they 100% had Quentin Tellus' DNA on those keys. And then you have the expert that gets up there and says, well, they might be on there, but they might not be. I can't include them, but I can't exclude them. And despite even that, we know that Quentin drove Jessica's car on one separate occasion to a liquor store. So that could explain why his DNA was on there to begin with. So the car keys and the phone pings were the prosecution's two smoking guns in this case. So let's break down the cell phone pings. So, Jessica had Verizon as her cell phone provider, and Verizon pings run off of a system called RTT, which stands for Range to Tower. Now, when an analyst who took the stand at the trial started looking through Jessica's cell phone records and looking at her pings on her cell phone, they noticed that the pings were off by at least a half mile. So wherever Jessica actually was, her phone was pinging a half mile away from there. Now they were able to figure this out because at the time that Jessica was seen on surveillance footage at the M&M store that night, her phone pinged a half a mile away from M&M instead of actually at M&M. So because of that, the analyst then shifted all of Jessica's cell phone pings from that night a half mile over. So basically, because they moved it a half mile the first time and it landed her at M&M at the time that we know she was there, the analyst then decided to do that with every single one of her pings for that night and moved each one of them a half mile as well. Now this did make some sense because obviously it shows that Jessica was at M&M at the time that it said that she was. And also at the time that Jessica's phone pinged where she should have been at the crime scene, it also was a half mile away. So when that specific ping was moved over, it placed her directly at the crime scene as well. So now if you're looking at the first ping from that night, which is the M&M store, and then the last ping from that night, which is her at the crime scene, when those were both moved a half mile, it confirms what we already know, which is where Jessica was at that time. However, the analyst did that with every single one of the pings because of that. I just wanna take a quick break here because I know that this is all very confusing and we're working with a lot of moving parts here. And I hope that I am explaining this clearly enough because it, it is a lot of information, but it is all, like I said, very important. So let's move on to Quentin's cell phone. So Quentin did not use Verizon as his carrier, he used AT&T. Now AT&T's equivalent to the RTTs that Verizon uses is something called Nilo. Now unlike RTT, Nilo only gives you the direction that the phone is going in, not the distance to the tower. So to say that Jessica and Quentin's phone show them at the exact same places that night and that they are together at the time that this crime was committed is not factual based off of the phone pings. Now, there was an electrical engineer expert who took a look at all of this data, and he wasn't a part of the case, but he looked at all of this afterwards. Now, according to him, he said that RTT data, which is what Jessica had, is simply an estimate, so it's not completely reliable. And along with that, the prosecution made an argument that both Jessica and Quentin were not using their cell phones from the times of 6.48 p.m. to 7.40 p.m. So you have this big chunk of time, about an hour, where neither of them are using their cell phones. And the prosecution used this to their advantage because they said, look, they both weren't on their cell phones at the time, and it's obviously because Quentin was lighting Jessica's car on fire. However, they said that neither one of them were sending any texts or any phone calls. However, that is not exactly true either. Now, what is true is that there were no texts from Quentin's phone being sent using his texting service. So basically like iMessages, that wasn't happening. However, what was happening is that Quentin was sending texts on his phone through an internet site now this internet site could have been twitter or facebook messenger or yahoo messenger he was communicating through other ways that just weren't brought up in this trial quinton sent texts through an internet site at 6 56 pm 7 10 pm and 7 41 pm so he was sending text all throughout the time period that the prosecution said was a big question mark and that neither of them were using their phone. Now, what we also know is that Quinton was seen on surveillance footage at a store in Batesville that's six and a half miles away from Cortland at 8.26 PM. So if we're looking at this from the perspective that Quentin did allegedly do this, he would have been having to move at super lightning speed to get all of this done. I'm not saying it's impossible. He very well could have. However, to walk away from the crime scene at around eight o'clock, and then to be casually seen on surveillance footage six and a half miles away at a different store in a different town, it's a tight timeline to hit. So several days after the trial started, the prosecution and defense present their closing arguments and the jury is sent to deliberate. Now, if Quentin was found guilty, he would face life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, the jury deliberated for over eight hours over the course of two days. This was something that the judge and the courts had never seen before, because when they returned, the judge was speaking to the jury and asking the jury if they all unanimously agreed on a verdict, because that is what has to happen in order for them to come to a conclusion. But this is when something strange happened. So when the judge asked the jury this, the foreman, who is the spokesperson of the jury, says, yes, we all agreed unanimously. However, shortly after the foreman says that, there was a juror, a very specific juror who blurted out that they did not agree unanimously because he believes that Quinton is guilty. So at this point, the judge and the entire legal team, no one knows what to do at this point because this is not something that happens. All of them said that they had never seen anything like this before because When you get sent back into the deliberation room the consensus is you're going to come back with some sort of verdict and if you can't agree unanimously you're going to also say that you can't agree so for someone to say that yes we all agreed unanimously and then for another person to come out and say no we didn't because i think he's guilty it definitely shook the courtroom because what that meant is that they were about to read a not guilty verdict for quentin So the judge had to then create a plan and he decided to send the jury back for them to continue to deliberate. And after hours of still deliberating and not being able to come to a decision, this trial resulted in a mistrial. So because of that, the prosecution decided that they were not gonna give up in finding justice for Jessica. They truly believed that Quentin was their guy and they were going to try him again. Now, this is when something very unusual happened. There was a client of Quentin's lawyer, who was an inmate and also a cellmate of Quentin. This man's name is Jalen Cottle, and he had contacted Darla, who's Quentin's lawyer, and had told her that the lead prosecution on Quentin's case, a man named John Champion, like I said earlier, had contacted Jaden and asked him to testify against Quentin in the new trial coming up, and in return, John Champion would help him on Jalen's sentence. Now, like I said, Jalen was Quinton's cellmate in Louisiana. And according to Jalen, he testified to this, Jalen said that John had asked him to testify and say that Quentin told Jessica that his name was Eric when they first met. Now, if this is true, this is over-the-top illegal. However, John Champion is a very credible district attorney in Cortland. People say that he's treated like God. He is very, very well-known and well-respected. And so when people heard this, they didn't really know what to believe. And then John Champion took the stand and he said, that's not at all what happened. What actually happened is that Jalen was the one who wanted to talk to John Champion and Jalen was the one who told John about this whole Eric nickname thing, but John Champion said that he didn't believe Jalen. So this is a bunch of he said, he said, back and forth. However, the claim was thrown out and a second trial was set. Now, the second trial began on September 24th, 2018 with the same legal team, however, a different jury. And the prosecution's whole game plan here was to really hammer down on some of the points that they missed in the first trial. For example, they stated that the suspicious man that was at the crime scene had been identified and police talked to him and they were able to rule him out from being involved. Now, similar to the first trial, those eight witnesses who all claimed to have heard Jessica say something along the lines of Eric, Or Derek they all came and testified again however this time they were not as certain as they were the first in the first trial they said that without a doubt she said Eric or Derek in this trial they're saying well I don't really know I'm not really sure it was very breathy she was just kind of making noises I couldn't definitively hear what she was saying which is the complete opposite Of what they said the first time and a lot of people are wondering if they had been coached or if they just you know the shock of it all had settled in a little bit more they thought about it more and realized that maybe they didn't hear what they thought they heard now something very interesting about all of this is that Quentin's sister actually has a tattoo of the name Eric on her hand and social media was very quick to jump to conclusion as to why she has that tattoo and if Quentin is somehow tied in to what that tattoo means. However, his sister said that it's a tattoo that she got for an ex-boyfriend years back so we don't really know now again the keys were also brought up in this trial too they brought back a forensic dna analyst who said that they couldn't include nor exclude Quentin's dna from the keys so we don't really know if they were on there at all so after the second trial was over and after closing arguments were made the jury deliberated for over 12 hours and just like the first trial they were not able to come to a unanimous verdict. It was split evenly down the middle. You had six voted guilty, six voted not. Now, there was not a third trial, so Quentin was never tried again for this, and he is currently serving out his 10-year sentence for the unauthorized credit card charge in Louisiana. So I do want to talk about a couple other things in regards to this case. And the first was that there was a potential theory floating around that Jessica could have possibly been an informant to the police in regards to gangs and drugs. Like I said earlier, Jessica's dad, Ben, worked for the sheriff's department as their mechanic. And there were rumors floating around that she, through her dad, was connected to the sheriff's department and was their informant because she was friends with the members of these gangs. And this theory really heightened when after Jessica's murder, police went through her phone and it was actually called Operation Bite Back is what police called it. They went through her phone and through her phone contacts, they were able to arrest 17 different people that were on their list and on their radar for drug dealers or gang members. And that really only heightened this theory. And Jessica's mom, Lisa, actually said that the week before she died, Jessica had told her mom that people thought that she was snitching. Those were her words. She said, Mama, these bitches think that I'm snitching, but I'm not. However, Jessica never explained who these people were. She never elaborated on that, and she also told her dad that. Now, both of Jessica's parents and her friends truthfully believed that she was not an informant to the police whatsoever so there isn't a lot to back that theory up however there also isn't a lot to say that that theory wasn't true now when it comes to the people who know quentin in courtland a lot of them believe that quentin just took the fall for this and was the easy target people who know him personally said that he wasn't necessarily smart enough or intelligent enough to pull this off However, they said if he did, they definitely don't believe that he acted alone. One of the lead gang members that was actually in this documentary made a point and he quoted and said, "'You have to be a real dumb black man "'to burn up a white girl in the state of Mississippi.'" end quote and there are a lot of people that agree with that and there are a lot of people that think that quentin was the easy fall guy because police in mississippi knew that they had to get someone for this and that they had to make an arrest and quentin was the easy target however you also have to think about the other side of this it makes sense why they would look at quentin quentin was with jessica all day leading up to her murder if we're following quentin's story then jessica was murdered maybe 15 to 20 minutes after she left quentin And so how much could really happen in 15 to 20 minutes? It does make sense why Quentin has been targeted in this and looked at. I do think that when you look at all of the evidence and look at everything that we know when it comes to the car keys and the phone pings and the lies, you know, Quentin lied about it for a really long time. He said that he wasn't with her at all. And then he changed his story and then he changed his story again. And he's also connected to another woman's murder in Louisiana, so we're not talking about someone who has a very clean record here. There is a lot in this case, and it's either that Quentin is the most unlucky guy in the world and was at the wrong place at the wrong time, which is what he states, or you look at it the other way and think, there's no such thing as a coincidence. Now, unfortunately, Jessica's mother, Lisa Chambers, passed away in late October of 2021, so not even a year ago at this point, and she died still not getting justice for her daughter. And that, I think, is the main thing here. You know, Jessica still doesn't have justice for what was done to her. She was murdered in the most brutal and horrific way, and regardless of who she hung out with or what her habits were or what she did. No one deserves to be murdered the way Jessica was. And the fact that she still has not gotten justice for this, and there is a very good chance that her killer is still walking free, is really horrifying. 12 years later, we're still sitting here saying, what happened to Jessica? Now, I am very interested to see what you guys have to say about this one. I'm really passionate about this case. I, th- I think about it all the time. Honestly, I haven't stopped thinking about it since I started researching it, and I don't know where I fall on this one. I think that there's evidence that shows that Quentin is responsible. I think that there's evidence that shows that maybe he didn't do it. I think, you know, the Eric and Derek thing, you have eight people who say that without a doubt that's what they heard, and then they switch their stories. But then I think about Jessica's ex-boyfriend, Derek Holmes. And how police just believed him when he said that he was at home. I think that there's just a lot of questions in this case. And I just hope that one day Jessica will receive justice because she deserves it now with that being said you guys that is all for me today thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of killer instinct if you're new here hi my name is savannah i'm your host of killer instinct again make sure you go ahead and subscribe that way you never miss an episode we post weekly on the podcast every wednesday and a video version on youtube every thursday as well and you're not going to want to miss it i'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys and until then stay safe bye guys